Modern software architectures often consist of containers that run services. Those containers scale up and down depending on the demand for those services. These large software systems also often use a technique known as event sourcing, where every change to the system's data model is kept in an event log. When an event on the log is processed, several different data stores might be updated in response. In these architectures, containers are often interacting with each other. Multiple databases are responding to events in the event log. To connect these systems together, engineers can write small functions to pass data around. You might call these small connecting functions glue. Glue functions are a great use for a serverless tool such as AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions. As these glue functions grow in popularity, there's an increased need for an open source way to deploy serverless functions or otherwise known as functions as a service. And by the way, I know I'm talking about a lot of things that are some advanced concepts here. If you're not familiar with serverless or microservices or Kubernetes or uh, event sourcing, we've done shows on all of these topics and feel free to uh, turn off here and go check out our back catalog for these other subjects. Sebastian Goskin works on Kubeless, a serverless execution tool built on top of Kubernetes. In this episode, we explore his take on the serverless on Kubernetes uh, problem. This is a great companion episode to yesterday's interview with Soam Vasani about uh, his tool, Fission. Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors for Q3. If your company has a product or service, or if you're hiring, Software Engineering Daily reaches 23,000 developers that are listening daily. So send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, and I'd be happy to talk to you about sponsorship. With that, let's get to this episode, Event Driven Serverless with Sebastian Glaskin. Sebastian Goskin works at Bitnami, and he is the creator of Kubeless. Sebastian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. You have written some books about Docker and CloudStack, and you've been uh, somebody who's worked on cluster computing for a long time. So let's start with a little bit of history. Can you give me some perspective on your evolution as an engineer in the cluster computing area ah yeah definitely you know that's that's an interesting uh question i'm gonna try to be uh, relatively brief um but you know i've been i've been around a little bit now so i've i've seen i've seen several things in the in the industry um i spent a lot of time in uh, in academia i i enjoyed research uh so interestingly i'm actually a electronics engineer uh, I worked a lot on uh, things like radars and antennas and things like this. So nothing to do actually with computer science, uh, or you know, not not directly related. But very quickly, I got into computational science. So now we're talking supercomputers, uh, clusters of servers, and and the need to uh, you know uh, orchestrate all those servers to be able to do computation and solve very uh, solve very interesting problems. So na- naturally, you know, I went away from my uh, natural tendencies of, you know, electronics, nanotechnology, things like this, 
and I got interested in making computing a utility. So really, mm-hmm. you know, cloud computing, how can we, you know, harness all the power of clusters and bring that to people in a, in a very easy, uh, very easy manner? It's been interesting to watch the adoption of industry, uh, industry adopting all these distributed systems and things that used to be widely discussed in the theoretical computer science community, bringing these to implementation. Uh, can you comment on the how you have seen the differences between academia and industry evolve and uh, it's just from my point of view, it seems like they've basically converged. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, you know a very good point, uh, and that that's why I left academia and I and I joined the industry, wanted to to be more on the uh, industry industry side. Uh, so so cluster computing, supercomputers is still going strong in academia. You got lots of supercomputer uh, projects in the U.S. in Europe. Uh, you got things that are being driven by CERN, obviously, but you got all the, the supercomputer, uh, uh, in the US. Uh, I was very involved in this and, and, you know, some of the problems was definitely scheduling, uh, efficiency of, of using those, those clusters. Uh, some problems were also around, you know, security, running, uh, code from anonymous people, uh, running, potentially running malicious code and things like this. So those, uh, experiences and, and, uh, areas of research led to the use of virtual machines in, in grids, uh, virtual machines in clouds, uh, in supercomputers, uh, also, you know, of course, also the use of containers for better scheduling, better packing of workload on computers. So all those themes of, you know, efficient scheduling, uh, you know, improved efficiency of the clusters. That's exactly what you find with things like Kubernetes, which is about, you know, orchestrating containers, but with a, an idea towards, you know, greater efficiency, packing more workloads on, on the server. Uh, it was also the same theme with, uh, uh, you know, virtual machines when, uh, when VMware, you know, came out with all their solutions, which was about consolidation of servers. So definitely you see the same, same themes over there. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of shows on Kubernetes. We've done a lot of shows about serverless as well. And I'm sure we're going to do a lot more on these for people who are a little unfamiliar with these topics, but maybe they've heard one or two shows, give the audience a quick refresher on what Kubernetes is, what serverless is, why these two technologies are important. Sure. Yeah, so Kubernetes is the, you know, I would say the, the, the next evolution in a way to manage your workloads. So, you know, there were solutions like OpenStack and CloudStack, which were virtual machine driven. Uh, they were very much about, you know, deploying your workloads on VMs, uh, which would be, you know, a non-prem uh, cloud solution. Um, and now there is this evolution, thanks to Docker, of actually using containers as a, a packaging format for the workload. And also, you know, it's, it, it's pushing towards... Uh, breaking up monolith uh, monolithic application and and embracing more of a microservice applications 
uh, application mindset. So as you, as you go towards, uh, containers, now you need a system to be able to manage all those microservices instead of, you know, more, uh, you know, bigger VMs and Kubernetes is quickly becoming the, the de facto almost standard to, to really orchestrate those containers, uh, at scale. Uh, but it's not only an issue of scale, it's also an, is- an issue of, you know, what are the APIs that you can use with Kubernetes to, to, uh, basically architect your application, uh, handle, uh, fault tolerance, handle configuration, you know, and, uh, and so on. So you got, you got Kubernetes on, on one side, and I'm sure, you know, your, uh, the, the people listening have, have heard your shows already on, on Kubernetes. Uh, one one thing that is that's interesting with Kubernetes is that it also allows you to build extremely new and exciting system, and you could call them you could call them PaaS, you know, platform as a service solutions. Uh, so those those PaaS like solutions uh, are extremely easy to do uh, on top of Kubernetes. So now you, you know, you have all of us that, that have been working on infrastructure for a long time on trying to make computing a utility, trying to make infrastructure boring. Uh, now we, we, now we actually start going back towards things like PaaS, trying to f- actually concentrate on the application again, going back to the applications. And now we, we, we figure out that things like serverless, you know, are much more, uh, uh interesting and powerful. So that we, we go back to, you know, actually concentrating on the logic that you have in your application. On, you know, you concentrate on writing the, the, the little bits of logic that, that are critical to your system. And, and you, and you want to figure out how to deploy those little, uh, logical items. So serverless is very much about, you know, going back to the roots of your application logic, uh, concentrating on, you know, those logical, uh, units. And, and deploying them, uh, as quickly as possible and, uh, and, and building, you know, much more interesting, uh, distributed applications. The way I have started to think about Kubernetes, like you said, it's a tool where you can easily build paths on top of it. You know, Ruby on Rails, the, the common way that people would explain Ruby on Rails is you can build Twitter in a day. You can build an application that makes a Twitter. Uh, like the entire entire functionality of Twitter in a day on Ruby on Rails. And with Kubernetes, you might be able to say the same for Heroku. You could build a Heroku in a day, a, a platform, an entire full-fledged platform as a service on top of Kubernetes in a day. And that's what's so impressive about it. And that's why we've seen such massive adoption. Like the adoption of Kubernetes is, uh, I think it's more aggressive than any other open source technology in history. Uh, maybe maybe it's outstripped by Linux, but um, in terms of production use, Kubernetes is is widespread. We've done shows uh, with Meetup and uh, several other companies who are deploying production Kubernetes clusters. Mm-hmm. Serverless, on the other hand, uh, assuming we're talking about functions as a service, this idea where you write your code, you write s- some blob of code. And it executes against a serverless cluster, which is there's some resource that gets spun up and it executes that code. And then that transient resource just disappears somewhere or it gets cached for a while or something. Um, that is a technology that a lot of people are talking about. 
but I have seen less production adoption of, except for things like image resizing or really well-defined atomic operations where you can very easily have this disposable container. So I've heard you talk about this. You encourage people to not dismiss serverless just because there is a lot of buzz and a lot of hype around it, and you know perhaps there's not as much production use case quite yet. So remind listeners what the value what is the value of serverless despite the fact that we're not seeing a whole lot of production use of it today yeah so you know first you know i'd like to go back to to kubernetes and and, and it being you know easy to 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 write like a, a pass like system uh it's extremely easy to write a, a poc you know a proof of concept uh but really a full-fledged you know pass you know it's it's going to be a little bit more uh, you know complicated um but but i totally agree that you know all the primitives are there in kubernetes to be uh, to be able to build those uh, those systems uh so so now you know pr- production uh and it, and it's something in our industry you know we tend to say oh yeah yeah i'm production i'm production and and we're never quite sure what people mean by i'm production uh, so we, you know, I, you know, I want to be, you know, always careful when we, when we say we are, we are production because people, you know, see it in a, in a, in a different way. Uh, but definitely, you know, talking about adoption, uh, you know, starting with Docker, Docker was adopted extremely quickly. The, the pace of adoption of Docker was extremely quick. Uh, and I think it was quick because developer really embraced it. So the, the developer really saw the strength of Docker to, to be able to, you know, quickly get a Redis or get a, get a MySQL, uh, get a memcache, you know, running on their laptop for development. But then once people, you know, indeed started focusing on production, they understood that they needed to move towards a real cluster. Uh, they needed, you know, a networking solution. They needed an orchestrator across machines and, and, and so on. And that's why, you know, there was a little bit of a, um, a lag between the adoption of Docker and then the adoption of, uh, of Kubernetes. You know, even though Kubernetes, of course, arrived, uh, after Docker. Uh, but now what we're seeing, and I agree with you, is that Kubernetes is definitely catching up and the, the adoption, you know, of Kubernetes is quite impressive. Uh, even out of Europe, which is, uh, you know, very, uh, I would say traditional or they're very uh, skeptical about new technologies, you know, especially technologies that, that come out of uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, but even in Europe, you see adoption of, of Kubernetes, you know, picking up extremely, extremely quickly. Uh, now, you know, back, back to serverless and, and your question. Sorry, you know, I went, I went around here. <laughs> Um, so b- back, back to serverless, you do see people in production like iRobotics and, and so on. Uh, uh, and even in Europe, you, you have, uh, people adopting, uh, serverless in production or which I should say, you know, AWS Lambda in production. Because if you look at solutions to do, uh, to do serverless, right now it's, you know, Lambda on AWS, Google Cloud Function, you know, is starting, but is, you know, is still behind. Uh, what AWS can do. You got Azure uh, functions, but you know, again, AWS is still in the lead. So when we look at production, we actually have to look at AWS uh, Lambda uh, users. Uh, 
the, the key for these guys is that they are already in the cloud and they're using the cloud services of AWS. So they're using the S3 store, they're using the uh, messaging system, they're using, you know, maybe like a vision API or, or EC2 or whatnot. So they're using existing services. And now they're trying to tie all those services together into an actual more complete application. So they're becoming, you know, what, what Patrick Debois from the, the DevOps movement, uh, called, uh, service full. So instead of serverless, you know, he, he mentioned, in fact, people are going service full. So they're just writing little bits of logic to link the services. Uh, so the, you know, the, the, the key for, for serverless is going to be a framework that allows us to write that, those little functions and deploy them and whatever that means underneath. But it also means that we're going to need services, so cloud services, available to tie them together. And the real key is going to, you know, indeed have those services and have those services emit events that can trigger functions. So we're, you know, people are in production. Yes, you know, you have a few already, uh, but it's it's still, you know, very very early, and that that's why at Bitnami we're we're pushing kubeless. Uh, it's still very early, very much a exploratory learning phase. And, uh, you know, I think we, we can, you know, meet again in maybe two years and, and then we'll, we'll be talking <laughs> about real production. <laughs> the architecture that you're describing is people are building applications with things like S3 and Firebase and maybe Heroku and maybe Amazon Kinesis, which is like a, an, an event queue, and maybe DynamoDB, which is a really rich database. And, you know, you want to use these managed services because they take a lot of the frustrations of running your own uh, database. Like, nobody wants to run their own database anymore and be responsible for the uptime of the database you'd much rather have aws to well i mean assuming you're cost insensitive you would much rather just have it hosted and have aws be responsible for it um but of course you need a way to have these services interact with each other and so that's why we still are managing servers somewhat you know we have servers that are have lines of code that say when S, when this S3 bucket gets changed, you know, do this other thing over here, and you've got to do glue code between S3 and some other service that you're using. Um, but serverless, in terms of AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions, it's extremely cheap. I mean, these these functions are really cheap to run. What's What's the motivation for wanting to have a homegrown serverless on top of kubernetes platform if it's so cheap to use these hosted services yeah that's that's a that's a very good question um and i you know there, there's been lots of talks about uh uh everybody going public cloud and and then you know are people going hybrid cloud and, and and so on and i don't really like to be caught up on definitions you know what 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 hybrid cloud means or what serverless, you know, means and so on. Um, but definitely what you're going to see is, is much more of a gray, a gray world where 
as you say, you know, some enterprise are gonna say, "Hey, that that bit of uh, of service, that service, I actually much prefer having Google or AWS manage that service and and use their DynamoDB or use their Cloud SQL, you know, whatever." So, so people are going to study their infrastructure and they're basically going to outsource some components to, to the cloud. But then that means that they're going to have some type of hybrid environment, you know, so they're still going to have some on-prem and then some, uh, some cloud services. But those bits of, uh, a glue code, exactly as you mentioned, you know, you're going to need to be able to use some glue code deployed in the cloud and then some glue code deployed on-prem. So, you know, as soon as you start uh, looking at, at containers for some of your applications that, that are on-prem and that you start deploying a solutions like Kubernetes to manage those containers, it makes total sense to be able to, uh, you know, have a serverless, you know, a, busy, a FaaS solution uh, on-prem. And that's exactly what we're doing with Kubeless. You know, we're saying, hey, you know, you're going to embrace Kubernetes uh on prem for your for your new containerized workload and by the way if you if you deploy kubeless then you'll be able to use uh you know faz okay and the the cli that we provide is compatible with uh google cloud functions so it's exactly the same thing um and then you know we also provide a, a plugin for the the serverless framework so if you you know if you're on AWS uh using lambda and you're now familiar with the the serverless framework uh you can also use kubeless so you know i think they, there's definitely room for a, a hybrid you know type and environment and uh, and kubeless there you know makes uh makes total sense there are people listening who might right now be like well but who cares about on-prem? We're just talking. If we're talking about on-prem, we're just talking about banks and old healthcare companies and these companies that they don't actually need to be on-prem. They're just slow to the game. But the reality is that there is going to be an increased uptake in more on-prem companies. You know, for example, I talked to uh, someone from the Azure Microsoft Azure IoT team, and he was talking about. Azure Stack, which is a on-prem deployment of Azure technologies. And it's like, okay, why would you want to do that? And the example that we talked about is if you've got a factory, let's say you've got a factory, and this factory has cameras all throughout the factory, and you want to have machine learning models that are processing the data from those video cameras really quickly and making judgments uh, real in real time quote unquote real time whatever that means but just low latency essentially and you want to be able to like oh identify there's been a chemical spill and we should tell you know close off this area or warn everybody to avoid this area if you want to get the latency really low you actually pr probably want to do something on prem and if you want to have this similar model to what you have in the cloud in your on-prem systems, then you might want to have a serverless architecture uh, for writing the glue code mm -hmm. for your uh, big bulky on-prem system. Yeah, and you know the the reality is like you know companies like uh, Oracle and you know even Red Hat to some extent, which does you know most of its business for uh, for the enterprise, which you can consider on-prem. Uh, 
you know, Cisco, VMware, I mean, all these big companies still have, you know, a very healthy uh, business. So there is a move towards public cloud, definitely, with Google at AWS, Microsoft. Um, but, you know, the end of uh, the end of the enterprise infrastructure and, uh, and on-prem, uh, you know, is not is not near. So it may be it may be in the in the future but you know it's going to be a long long time before this is uh this is the case and now when you when you talk about you know the the cloud and everybody is going to the cloud and it's uh you know people are late to the party when when you talk to you know people who maybe not at the at the forefront of things you know they um, they, they still have a ton of legacy. They're still struggling with embracing, you know, some even version control, you know, embracing configuration management. You know, a lot of the things that we do in our industry when we say, oh, yes, DevOps and config management and Git and so on, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people that, you know, that are way behind. Uh, you know, they're dealing with, you know, lots of Java application that they need to run without configuration management and so on. So it's a little bit of a long-winded, you know, story, but I think we, we have to be aware that uh, there is definitely a huge, huge uh, market and a lot of people that are still in the enterprise, as you know, as we say, and, and not uh, going to the cloud, uh, you know, anytime soon. Companies like Google, so let's take Google as an example. Google has the Google Borg, and this is the project that Kubernetes was based on, and this is what most Googlers still use internally to run their services. It's a it's a cluster manager where you can deploy your application against this giant cluster manager that manages all the resources at Google. Do Googlers... Do you know if they have an internal serverless technology for writing their glue functions? I mean, uh, or, or, or Amazon, perhaps. These companies that are at the forefront of uh, cloud management, are they actually using these types of services internally to improve their server usage? It's a very good question, and actually, I never asked them, so I, I actually don't know if they have, uh, you know, uh, basically an internal uh, lambda, you know, type function. Uh, I think it makes total sense, and they probably have. Uh, you know, definitely, I, I, I know for a fact that, uh, you know, in the case of uh, of Borg, uh, you know, different groups within Google have developed their own. Uh, you know, domain-specific language to describe application, and then they've, they've written lots of different types of wrapper on top of Borg to deploy application and uh, and even you know uh, manage them in a in a certain way. So I wouldn't be surprised if you know some of those uh, PaaS-like solution uh, are actually very close to what we call now a FaaS, uh, you know, solution. And and again, you know, sometimes we tend to get uh, really caught up in uh, in naming, uh, you know. For me, the, the the issue or what we're trying to do with serverless is really even you know forget about Kubernetes, forget about containers. Let's go back to the application. Let's go back to the code. You got some bits of codes on your computer. How do you run that in a distributed manner on remote resources? You know, it's a it's almost a 
a theoretical question, but it's, it's very basic, you know. Forget about the how it's being done, you know. Indeed, forget about the servers, but forget about Kubernetes and forget about containers. You don't need to, to worry about Docker, you know. But you, you, you care about your code. You care about debugging your code. You, you care about your code being able to serve all the requests that it needs to. And you care about your code being triggered properly and, and, and so on. So how do you make that happen? You know, how do you make that happen extremely quickly? Uh, so that you can innovate quickly and, uh, and so on. So I'm sure that internally, you know, I mean, Google has, uh, you know, probably several different systems to do this and, and AWS as well. Yeah. Now they could just use Google Cloud Functions or AWS Lambda internally if they want to. Um, or Kubeless. Or Kubeless. I'm sure they're going to or Kubeless. Kubeless internally. <laughs> or Kubeless. Or one of the other serverless on Kubernetes implementations. So let's talk about Kubeless itself. I think at this point we've motivated the serverless on Kubernetes discussion. And I think, you know, I, I like having these discussions over and over and over again. We've rehashed so many of these topics about architecture on different episodes, but I think it's really useful because there's a, this is a lot of where things are going. And I think it's really useful for people to just get refreshers over and over again on how these things work and why they're important. But now that we've done that, let's get an overview for the kubeless architecture. Yeah. And, and, and you're totally right with, uh, with rehashing those ideas. Uh, and that, that's very much, uh, you know, what, uh, what I, um, what I keep in mind all the time. Uh, a lot of the things we do, you know, they're just evolution. They're, they're not new. It's just, you know, we, we progress, things evolve, we have new technologies coming in, but we're still trying to do the same thing, which is, you know, run your code. You know, the, the time from uh, development to production of your code should be uh, extremely quick, you know, so it's like a mean time to production, you know, uh, MTP or something like that. Um, that should be extremely quick. So, so Kubeless, you know, the, the idea was really that Kubernetes gives us all the primitives to be able to build a very exciting and useful system. Uh, the Kubernetes API is extremely powerful. That's one of the reasons why I jumped on Kubernetes. Uh, you know, the pod concept, the deployment concepts, which allows you to do rolling updates, rollbacks, uh, the service concept for routing your traffic properly to the, the right containers. There are lots of different API primitives in Kubernetes that are extremely powerful. So when you think about writing a system to, to do something like serverless, uh, you can leverage all the strength of Kubernetes. And that's why we call kubeless Kubernetes native. What we're trying to do is, is write actually a, a very minimalistic system. So it's, you know, it's not going to take us just a day. It's going to take a while, but it's as minimalistic as possible because we reuse all the Kubernetes primitive. We reuse deployment. We reuse services. Uh, and we reuse especially the third party resource to extend the Kubernetes, uh, API. So. You know, that was the, that was the main idea behind the, the architecture. So now in details, you know, we, Kubernetes has this concept of third party resource, which is a way to extend the Kubernetes API. Uh, it's extremely powerful. It means, you know, you're trying to build a new API for your application. You can actually use the Kubernetes API server itself 
by writing your new API resources, uh, giving it a spec, and and then you know Kubernetes suddenly man, uh, is able to manage that that new REST API endpoint. So it's an extremely powerful concepts. We're using it in Kubeless. Things like the etcd operator by CoreOS, they're also using third-party resources. Um, there is a there is a new mechanism to to do similar things that that's coming uh, that's coming up in the new uh, version of Kubernetes, which is a uh, uh, API uh, server aggregation. So it's going to it's going to allow you to do same you know similar type of things. But that's the first thing we we use third-party resource and then we reuse as many of the primitives as possible. So let me let me stop you there because this is one thing we don't go into enough on software engineering daily is the the deep internals of systems sometimes we just don't go deep enough and you mentioned this third party resource abstraction and as a person I'm a, I'm just a reporter on on software and I don't actually use these things so I don't have firsthand uh, experience with third party resource what does that abstraction do within Kubernetes. Yes, yeah, so the you know the the main motivation we call them TPR uh, third-party resource. The the main motivation was was to say that you know at one point the the core of the Kubernetes API is going to be stable, and if we've done our job or the you know the the group that's that's developing the Kubernetes API, if they've done their job properly, uh, that should be extremely stable and shouldn't need to be uh, expanded. Uh, so there should sh- there shouldn't be any you know discussion about hey we need this new API resource we need this new thing and then we need this new thing and should it get into core and oh no it shouldn't get into core. So you know there are lots of those debates in uh, in communi- open source communities sometimes. Um, here, the idea was to remove that that potential for debate by saying we're going to have a very strong core stable, and then if you want to extend the API, you're going to write your API extension using this system, which is called a third-party resource. So what it is exactly? It's it's another Kubernetes API primitive. You you write a manifest to define a third-party resource. Uh, and then what Kubernetes does when you create that third-party resource, Kubernetes now creates uh, on the fly a new REST uh, endpoint. Okay, so suddenly you start talking to the Kubernetes API server, and there is there is a brand new uh, API endpoint that's available. Okay, and you mm-hmm. can do HTTP GET and POST and and so on. So, and now maybe we're getting into too many details, but you know, I I do think it's it's important. Uh, yeah. So you know, once you've done that, uh, you haven't done much actually. Okay, you you you've just you know let Kubernetes create that new endpoint. What you need to do is write a controller. So you need to write some piece of code uh, that that now is going to monitor this new endpoint, and when things happen in this new endpoint, then you're going to do some actions. So for us with Kubeless, what it means is that. We create a new endpoint, which we call, you know, function, uh, function.io. Okay. So now we have a new endpoint that's managed by the Kubernetes API server, which manages, uh, which, yeah, manages functions. And the kubeless controller just watches all the time that endpoint. And when you create a function, it says, Oh, a function was created. Let me spin up a container. 
using the Kubernetes resources, I spin up a container and I inject the code, that glue code, I inject that glue code inside that container. And now suddenly your function is exposed. Okay. So that's what kubeless is. It's a definition of a third party resource to extend the Kubernetes API and then a function controller. So we called it the kubeless controller to, to be able to, to launch the, the containers and inject the, the function code into them. If my application writers, what if they're just writing tons and tons of functions as a service against my kubeless cluster? What's going on there? Is the is it the controller that gets hammered with all those requests and the controller scales up, or does the third-party resource scale up? I'm just I'm trying to understand the purpose of the third-party resource abstraction versus the controller abstraction that's watching the third-party resource. So, so what happens for us with, you know, from, a, from a kubeless standpoint is that we didn't have to write our own API server. Okay? We're not writing our own API server. We're not writing our own scheduler. We're letting Kubernetes itself handle that. So when all your developers start creating function, they hit the Kubernetes API server. And it's the responsibility of the Kubernetes API server to be able to handle all those requests properly. And if you hit any limitations, you hit the limitations of Kubernetes itself. Okay? And we know how well Kubernetes is scaling now, so we are very confident that, you know, the, the, the scale is, uh, you know, is there. And now all the storage, like the function, the functions, where are they stored? They're stored in the etcd key value store used by Kubernetes itself. So we don't have to, we don't have to set up a separate database. We don't have to handle the state on a, ourselves. We basically kubeless delegates all of this to Kubernetes. Okay. And that means that we just have the controller and the controller is just like, you know, watching, watching the resources and then performing actions. So. Can you give me a little more clarity on what the purpose... So I understand the third-party resource is this way of extending Kubernetes to do your domain-specific things. I, I would just love to, to know a little in a little more detail just how... What is the importance of the third-party resource here? Because I'm hearing you say, okay, you set up a controller through the third-party resource or using the third-party resource. I'm just trying to understand what the purpose of the third-party resource is relative to that controller. So, so if you compare with uh, Fission, which is another yeah. serverless solution uh, yeah. that runs, you know, on Kubernetes, um, when you deploy Fission, you deploy its own the Fission API server, and the developers they're going to talk to the Fission API. Okay. The difference with Kubeless is that you're going to talk to the Kubernetes API itself, which with Kubeless will know what a function is. Okay. So that's like, you know, one of the, the biggest, uh, difference. And then once your function is created, uh, we, we use Kubernetes to actually decide where that function is going to run, you know, in the cluster. We use the Kubernetes scheduler. Whereas in Fission, you know, they have their own scheduler on top of it. And that's right. Why, and that's why we call it Kubernetes native. So, in the fission world, they have a pool of containers, a resource pool of containers that just sits around. And if you've got 
Like, let's say you've written an image resizing function in JavaScript. They have a pool of containers that are uh, suited to running JavaScript, and when they get a re- when the cluster gets a request for the image resizing, they schedule one of those containers against that function. And you're saying the difference between that and Kubeless is that in Kubeless, you've got the function, whatever language it's written in, is in etcd, and when you get a request for that function, the entire scheduling of the container being um, allocated and the code being loaded into it, all of that's handled by Kubernetes on the fly. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. And and so what happens? The the reason why the fission guys and you know I I know them quite a bit. The reason why they created a pool of containers is to reduce the startup time of the function because it's very important in in serverless. So if your containers are already running and and you just inject the the little bit of code, you know the startup time uh, is extremely short. So the latency from the time that you you know you you create the function to the time that you can actually call the function is extremely uh, short. So for us in Kubeless, this startup time right now is you know is longer. Indeed, it's longer because we have to start the containers. Uh, you know, there is the scheduling time from Kubernetes and then you have to start the containers. But we opted to delay the optimization on the startup time to actually concentrate on the, uh, the functionality. So, you know, we have the, the plugin, you know, with the, the serverless uh, framework. We have the compatibility with the Google Cloud functions. We handle dependencies. And then we basically go through all the AWS Lambda examples. You know, you mentioned image resizing and then kinesis stream and things like this. So we are methodically going through all those examples that AWS Lambda showcases. And we're trying to, you know, hammer them out and enable that functionality. So if you go to the kubeless uh, GitHub repo, you'll see a short screencast of an image resizer using um, the Minio object store and then using kubeless uh, with a 50, 50 line of Python. With databases, we have gotten to this point where there's so many different databases based on whatever model of consistency you need, whatever model of availability you need. Do you need ACID transactionality? Do you need high throughput? And it almost sounds like if if we move if we're moving to a world where you've got most of your glue code managed by quote unquote serverless, some of those glue code operations are more latency sensitive than others. Um, is this a rich enough gradient that we're going to see a, a real variety of uh, of scheduling tools for serverless functionality? Mm, so I'm not a database expert. Uh, I'm more of a cluster computing guy. Um, sure, sure, sure. Uh, t- just, <laughs> just to be to to be clear, the, the the analogy I was trying to draw was that there's a lot of richness in you know originally it was like okay we'll just put everything in a SQL database, but then we realized okay there's all these trade offs we can have. Yep. And here bet- between Kubeless and Fission, I see essentially the the trade off that you have is the cold start problem and how aggressively you're solving the cold start problem. Fission solves the cold start problem really aggressively by essentially preloading yep. containers with uh, with some information 
and that makes the latency less sensitive. And then with Kubeless, you're saying, well, you know, we want to have these very, uh, you know, if we're going to solve if we're going to solve cold start problems, then we want to solve them with individual solutions for individual problems like image resizing or whatever it is. Um, no, that's not that's not exactly what what I was uh, going at. Is okay. that you know we want to concentrate on enabling the application use cases because that's what that's what Bitnami does. You know, Bitnami has been doing application packaging and uh, and delivery for a long time. So we we concentrate on the apps. So we want to enable the different uh, application scenarios that people are interested to solve using serverless. Okay. Uh, so we're going through all those application scenarios, data processing, data streaming, image resizing, mobile backend, you know, so we're going through all those different scenarios and figuring out, you know, what do we need to build into Kubeless to enable those scenarios for, for the apps. And now, you know, our thinking is that, uh, the, the startup time, since we are Kubernetes native, we actually offload the problem of the startup time to Kubernetes. And what we want to do is basically say, okay, now we can do uh, Kinesis stream, but let's say there is a, a problem with the startup time. So now we actually go back to Kubernetes upstream to the project and we say, hey, you know, when we are scheduling this in such and such conditions, the, the, the scheduler is really bad. You know, can, can we do, can we do something? And now we can actually write a serverless optimized Kubernetes scheduler because it's, you know, we can tune that. Uh, but basically, you know, we feed those requirements back to the Kubernetes community to make sure that Kubernetes can actually handle that. Okay. So that's, that's our entire, uh, philosophy around developing kubeless. Now the, the one big thing also that, that's different with, with Fission that we, and we haven't talked about it, uh, at all. Uh, but it, you know, even for serverless in general, it's very important, uh, is events. So all of this is only useful if the services that we try to glue together emit events. And right now there's lots of debates about, you know, uh, coming up with, uh, some standard around events, around interfaces to, to events and things like this. That's going to be a big challenge for the serverless community. But the one thing we did with Kubeless early on is that we wanted to enable events. So when you install Kubeless, you also get a Kafka broker, which is deployed inside Kubernetes. It's a, it's a standard Kubernetes stateful set Kafka and Zookeeper deployment. And that means that now any of your services that emit events, if they can emit those events into Kafka, your functions can be triggered by events which is a totally different scenarios than triggering via HTTP. Okay. So we get that out of the box and it plays an interesting role with what you're saying about databases, because there are lots of scenarios, you know, people are talking to us and they're saying, well, actually my transaction in my database, I would like, you know, all the, the, my database events to go into a Kafka broker. So what we're working on is actually figuring out a way to, you know, ingest all those events from databases and other things into our Kafka setup in Kubeless so that they can be triggered by a function. So now you make an insert in MySQL and that triggers a 50, a 50 line of code, you know, a Python function. 
Okay, that's actually really interesting. You know, we did a show with Neha Narkeda from uh, Confluent a while ago, and she was res- she was part of the founding team of Kafka. And mm-hmm. um, we talked about event sourcing. We talked about event sourcing on Kafka. Event sourcing or CQRS, I'm not exactly sure which one is referred to specifically, but basically the idea is every time there is a change to anything across your application's data, you put that in a Kafka queue or some kind of queue, and you have different consumers of that data change. So if you have a change to a user, a user's profile, you're going to need to update several different databases. You need to update the user database. Like if a user makes, if user goes onto their profile page on Facebook and makes a change to their user profile, you're going to need to change your, the user database. You're also going to need to change the Elasticsearch cluster that mm-hmm. uh, powers the search over all of your users and all of your other data. Maybe you need to change some other databases. And so the question is, okay, you know, if 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 we want to be able to trigger multiple database changes based off of one user operation, how do we do that? And the answer is you put the event on a queue and you have listeners that are somehow wired to listen for that type of event. And then those listeners process that event and make the change to the respective databases that need to get changed. And this takes a lot of resources because you've got tons of database changes incoming and basically what you're saying is this is a perfect application for serverless because you've got all these these quick database changes that need to be made and it's kind of an atomic event and you probably want custom schedule custom customized way of customized ways of making each of these changes am i am i, am I describing the situation accurately yeah, no, no, perfect. Uh, you know, a big, a big thing for for serverless is event-driven based application. You know, in itself, it's not new. It's you know, you 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 bring uh, you bring enterprise service bus, uh, you know, type application, uh, and and you know, you you have similar uh, similar things. The the key here is that those those complex scenarios which uh, necessitate uh, you know, which uh, need a, a, a fairly complex infrastructure. Now it's becoming extremely easy to deploy. You you set up a Kubernetes cluster, you you turn on Kafka, you add Kubeless onto it, and now suddenly you start writing this glue code. And that complex scenario that you just mentioned, now you can actually you know concentrate on it and write it extremely quickly. So you get back to the basis of you know what what we're all trying to do, which is an extremely quick pace of innovation, writing software, deploying software extremely quickly, and uh, and being able to 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 focus on those uh, yeah complex scenarios and and doing it you know relatively easily. Okay, and as we begin to wrap up, uh, you know, we started off kind of talking about. Okay, why isn't there a lot of serverless in production, or how are people using serverless today? And Bitnami, it seems like, is a is a great example of how you might use serverless. So the the little bit of your history is, you started a company called Skipbox, and then you joined Skipbox joined Bitnami, largely because it seems like. Bitnami is a company that can really make use of the kubeless technology that you were working on at Skipbox. 
so ex- give, give a little history for why Skipbox joined Bitnami and what you're doing there now, what Bitnami is and how Kubeless fits into that. Yeah, so when, when we started, you know, I, I discussed a little bit about my, my background in computational science and, uh, and definitely, you know, I, I saw a point where lots of things is being done in academia, but, uh, the industry is definitely pushing, you know, extremely hard, uh, new technologies and so on. So I, I decided to leave academia, get into the, uh, get in on the industry. I worked on, on cloud systems. And when, when Docker came around, you know, containers, uh, we, we had been using containers for a while. It was not new, but I was very intrigued by the fact that Docker really, uh, picked on. So that's why, you know, I started writing the, the Docker cookbook. And that's why recently you, you heard me talk about do not dismiss, you know, do not dismiss new tech. Otherwise, you know, you may, you may get, uh, left behind. So I didn't want to dismiss Docker. And, uh, and right now I, uh, you know, I do not want to dismiss serverless. You know, some people are going to do it naturally, but if you don't dismiss it and you actually try to understand what, what this is about, you'll, you'll realize that this is, you know, a continuous evolution of what we're trying to do, uh, of, uh, you know, the infrastructure is now boring. Cloud is really good. We have Kubernetes. We know how to do containers. Now let's get back to applications and let's go back to writing applications, operating them, deploying them. So when we talk about applications, that's where Bitnami comes in. So we had written Kubeless, you know, as part of, uh, as part of Skipbox. We, we wrote additional Kubernetes software like Compose, like a, a mobile app called Cabin and, and different other things. Uh, but we, we started developing Kubeless, you know, late in, uh, in 2016. And we, we were talking with, uh, with Bitnami and, and focusing on applications. So that, that's where the two of us, we, we got together and we really, uh, you know, hit, hit a nerve is that, uh, you know, I saw as part of Skipbox, I saw that this was all about applications, uh, trying to make them extremely easy to deploy, operate, operate them and so on. And, uh, and Bitnami, you know, totally, uh, now as, uh, as Embrace Kubernetes has the, the new platform to deploy applications on. So, you know, Bitnami tries to, uh, to support their users in this, that entire journey of native installer, if you're bare metal, VM, if you do VMs, cloud, if you use cloud. So Bitnami can, can package and, and deliver applications for all those formats. Now we, Bitnami is a strong, uh, contributor to Helm charts, which is like the Kubernetes package manager. And serverless, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, a little bit in the future, you know, there's still, there are already, sorry, some, uh, some users, but it, you know, it's, uh, it's an advanced packaging and deployment mechanism. So we want to be, you know, uh, uh, well aware of what are people trying to solve and, and so on. And, uh, and we think we have a, we have a solution here to, to help the community embrace serverless and, uh, and be able to build that continuum for applications. You know, don't, don't leave anybody behind. You know, it's not, it's not politics, but don't leave anybody behind. Like you want to do VM, we can help you and then we can help you, you know, go through Kubernetes and then potentially up to serverless. So that's where Bitnami and Skipbox came together. And, and, and now we are very exciting and, and pushing further. All right, Sebastian. Well, it's been great having you on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff.